Hi friends, I hope you are doing very well and that you are having a delightful week. Today we get to talk about classroom management. My name is Victoria Bowler and you are listening to episode 21 of Elemental Conversations. This is a subject that came up several different places, but two of them were from the planning binder and then a YouTube comment as well. So I'll read both of those just to kind of set the tone of what we are talking about here. This is from my colleague, Melanie, inside the planning binder, and she said, what are some of your procedures for classroom management? I am the most nervous about this. I want to build relationships with my students and have something set up that will give them a beneficial musical experience without focusing on anything negative. So that's from Melanie. Uh, This YouTube comment is from my colleague, Alyssa. And she said, hi, Victoria, I am going into my first year of teaching this August, and I would really appreciate any tips or classroom management strategies that you have. I love all of your videos too. They have helped me feel more prepared and given me some ideas of my own. That's fabulous to hear. (laughs) Okay, let's just jump straight in because uh, this is a really big topic. This is a subject for an entire book, uh, for an entire collegiate course, certainly for an entire online course, and with very, very good reason, because this is a big, big topic. Classroom management is the thing that can really make or break our experiences as elementary general music teachers. This is the thing that at the end of the day, you either leave really energized, like you have just finished a really great workout, or you feel totally depleted and drained of energy. That comes back to all of these practices surrounding how we treat each other in the classroom. In other words, classroom management. Today, we will not cover every best practice of classroom management, right? We've already talked about how this is an entire course, an entire book, but we will look at some of the, hey, hey, elemental building blocks of a well-run classroom and hopefully set the tone for any other Uh, tools that you choose to use in your teaching. And that's another thing to point out as well. This is not going to touch on sticker charts or a star musician or a, you know, musician of the week or anything like that. And even though I know that those are very popular tools to use, I want to kind of back up just a little bit and look at the, the practices and the demeanor, the posture towards classroom management that can really help those tools uh, work more effectively if those are the tools that you choose to use. Let's start with just some basic assumptions. These are the things that I want us to have in place before we have any more of this conversation. So let's set this backdrop with three main assumptions. My first one is that I'm assuming that you like your students and that they like you. Very simply, we behave better. We are more likely to go out of our way to use self-management when we like the person that we are behaving for. And 
in the same kind of in a similar way, if we like someone, we are more likely to give them grace when they mess up. And students are, we'll talk about this in a moment, but students are going to push our boundaries every single class. That's something that is developmentally appropriate. And again, we'll get to that in a second, but my very first assumption is that you like your students and your students like you. Next, let's assume that in your communication practices with your students, you are already in the habit of communicating in a way that is respectful to them and communicating in a way that models how you want them to communicate with you. So in other words, if you do not think that... uh, If we, as a teacher community, do not think that it would be appropriate for our students to snap at us and to raise our voice, to raise their voices at us when they are angry or to use sarcasm in a really personal way, if we would not allow that of our students to talk to us or each other, we'll have that same boundary with our tone and our communication practices with them. So I'm going to assume that, uh, you know, to the best of our habits, our learned habits, our learned skills of communication, that our words and our demeanor are uplifting, even as we redirect behavior in classroom management. Okay. So the first thing is I'm going to assume that you like your students and that they like you. (laughs) I'm going to assume that we are in a practice of communicating with our students in a way that is uplifting. And then the third thing is I would like to just assume that we are all in a healthy headspace when we have this conversation because we've talked before, um, in the, gosh, it was like a stress. What is it? Burnout in elementary general music. We talked about how there's no like mental health check for teachers. There's no interview process to see, Hey, are you, you know, in, on the spectrum of mental wellness, where do you fall? And teaching can be a really, really taxing job and conversations about classroom management can be very emotional because we are dealing with the emotional development, both of ourselves and our own emotional practices and journeys. And we are also dealing with the emotional development and the behavioral development, right? As a consequence of our emotions or as a result of what we feel, we are dealing with the emotional and behavioral development of very young children. And so that means that we are going to deal with children when they are at their, uh, big quotations here, worst, when they are at their most emotionally heightened. And we will be dealing with them times that we ourselves are in an emotionally heightened space as well. So if you are uh, not in a great headspace to have this conversation about classroom management, then perhaps the best thing to do right now is not to continue listening to this conversation. Perhaps it's to press pause and take a nap or take a walk or call a friend or something like that. I just want to make sure that we are leaving lots of room for whatever previous experience about conflict and emotion and communication during conflict in an emotional way. So with that out of the way, you like your students, they like you, we communicate in a way that is respectful and we're in a place to have this conversation in a positive way. Let's jump in. The first thing I want to talk about is expectations because happiness is all about our expectations. 
when we know what to expect from our students, we know what would be an appropriate thing to structure our classroom practices around. And then when it's time to redirect, that can really help inform how we redirect our students. So let's talk about some expectations and some questions that we're going to need to address in terms of classroom management. For example, how long is it reasonable to expect students to sit still? Ooh, interesting. How long is it reasonable to expect students to stay focused on a specific task? And then, you know, within all of these expectations, what are our expectations for a six-year-old and an 11-year-old? And how does that change? You know, uh, is it reasonable to expect students to be silent instead of talking? And then kind of the follow-up thing is developmentally, what is the role of conversation and social interaction to this student? We know what our um, purpose is in asking them to be silent it's so that they can listen to directions and focus on what we're talking about. And that's really, really important. Another piece to consider is just what is the role developmentally of social interaction and conversation in the world of this student? And then what is a reasonable level of impulse control? So how long should we expect students to sit still and focus and be silent and have impulse control? Now, when I talk about expectations and kind of setting the tone for what we can expect from students, there is a level of what is developmentally appropriate and we need to have that in place. Now, I have an and. <laughs> and just because it is developmentally appropriate does not mean that it is situationally appropriate for every situation. Our jobs are still to help guide students to situationally appropriate behavior. So just because it is developmentally appropriate for a six-year-old to have comparatively low levels of impulse control, that doesn't mean that when they run around the room and just like bang on every single drum that they see, we go, well, that is developmentally appropriate. That is how a six-year-old behaves. This is right on track, right? <laughs> we are still guiding them to situationally appropriate behavior. But having our own expectations set on the front end can really help us make some of these nuanced decisions. And hopefully it will help us make these nuanced decisions before students ever set foot in the classroom. And what I mean by that is our lesson structure will be set up in a way that is partnering with where students are developmentally instead of really working against it all the time. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, I also want to just make sure that we are on the same page, that it is developmentally appropriate for students to push boundaries. We can expect students to push boundaries every single class. That is a good thing because we do not want to raise humans that just kind of shrug their shoulders and passively go along with whatever anyone tells them. Anytime they read something on the internet, anytime that they hear a direction uh, that is a bad idea, we want them to have the presence to say, now, wait a minute, let me push back on that a little bit. Now, wait a minute, I need to ask why right? All of those things where they push on our boundaries, that is very, very good. The way students push our boundaries are things like talking and moving around the room and losing focus and playing too loudly on the instruments and running when they should be, you know, stepping and caring about being first in line. All of those things 
are very, very good qualities that children naturally exhibit. That's fabulous. Our job is to respond to them in a way that is also developmentally appropriate. So again, children will push boundaries. Our student musicians will push boundaries. That's their job as students is to see, can I trust the adult in the room? Are you a trustworthy person? And us as the adult, as the, uh, the head of the classroom, our job is to hold the boundary in a way that is still respectful and student centered, developmentally appropriate. Again, I'm going to keep saying that term for what students need for us at that time. We are trustworthy adults, which means if we say that this is the expectation in the classroom, we're not changing the expectation, even if we like you, even if we love that we get to be your teacher, we still hold that boundary. Okay. Every single lesson, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this idea, but Every lesson needs a developmentally and a culturally appropriate combination of movement and student choice and social interaction. So when we know what to expect from a developmental standpoint, we can do things like include lots and lots and lots of small group work in fourth and fifth grade. And we can include lots of opportunities for those students to talk and play instruments. And to have lots of choice in kind of more of the big picture direction of the activities in the classroom. That is a really great practice for upper elementary. And we know that because we know that those students, those student musicians need to talk. They verbalize everything. And so let's include areas where they can talk. We know that our younger musicians, our youngest musical learners need to move. And so we will have very limited times of asking them to sit still and focus silently. And instead, even if it's a high focus situation, we will include lots of movement in everything that we do because that is what they need developmentally. So when I say that having those developmentally appropriate expectations can help us before students even walk in the room, this is what I mean. We can make sure that our classroom layout and then our lesson plan and our own demeanor as teachers, we can make sure that all of those things are in place to really help students succeed. All of that can happen before students even walk in the door. Now let's talk about what happens when students do walk in the door and how we can redirect them. Again, every lesson is going to have the correct combination, that magic secret recipe. And it will also, quick aside, it will also probably be different for each class right? Each class in a single grade level. And maybe, you know, this has to do with who you see on a Monday versus who you see on a Friday versus who you see first thing in the morning and who you see after recess and who you see at the end of the day, right? But we're going to include a a correct combination, correct as in um, helpful combination of movement and choice and social interaction. Once students are in the room and you see that it's time for a redirection, let's direct to an action and not an inaction. So instead of, um, you know, a student is like turned around in their spot and they are, uh, you know, kind of like talking to themselves (laughs) as young children sometimes do, instead of saying, um, Brittany, you need to sit and be quiet 
you might say, Brittany, we're all keeping the steady beat, right? And we'll talk about what you might say before you call that student out by name. We're going to direct, the point is that we're directing to something that we want them to do and not just passively sit down, stay still, stay quiet. That's not quite enough direction for our young students. There is also a lot of research that has been done on active musicking and how that applies to classroom management or how it's related to classroom management. Very specifically, there was a research study done with fifth grade behavior. And the question was, what is the classroom management result of a classroom where students are very active and students have a lot of choice versus passive and very teacher-centered. It will probably not come as any surprise to hear that the behavior management was much, much, much better in the active music room where these fifth graders had something that they were actually doing versus the one that was more passive where they just needed to sit down and listen, right? So there's, there's a lot of research that has gone into the active part of music and all of certainly the musical ramifications, but then also the social, the classroom management piece of having an active music room. Someone who does this very, very well is Joshua Block. And I'm sure that so many people listening will already be familiar with his work, but if not, uh, Joshua Block teaches all sorts of things kind of over in Orfland, but I was really excited to be in his level two and level three movement classes when I took my Orf levels for two and three. And when you write a lesson plan for Joshua Block, you have a lesson template that is set up into two different categories. One is what is the teacher doing? And the second one is what are the, what is the student doing? What are the students doing? And if you go through your lesson and look at all of the directions that you're giving, you might notice that a lot of it has to do with you, right? Like, uh, I will explain this. I will ask the students to do X passive task while I do this active thing. And that's a conversation for, for maybe later in this episode. But when we think about from a student's viewpoint, from what a student would see with their own, you know, camera of their eyeballs, <laughs> what are the students actually doing? And so this framing of a lesson plan, very specifically thinking through what is my job and what are the students doing? Hopefully, hopefully the student portion has a lot of stuff going on and the teacher part is kind of just uh, steering the ship in terms of like, now we're on this activity, now we're on this activity, right? And so students are doing a lot of active things. I will talk about resources for classroom management later in, you know, in the show notes, but one of the books that really helped frame my thinking about this is called Teaching with Love and Logic. I believe it is in that book. Um, it's either in that or it's in a book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen, where they talk about at the end of the day, you know, the bell rings and kids run outside and they're like, yeah, we're out of school. And they have lots and lots of energy and they're like, yes, this is great. I'm so excited to be out of school. And teachers walk out 
of their classroom with a very different energy. (laughs) Teachers walk like, oh, that was so hard. Wow, what a day. (laughs) And the difference is that we have been doing all of the classroom management stuff for our students. We have been doing all of the activities in the lesson for our students. Instead of saying, this is the student classroom. This is the student time. This is what the students are supposed to be doing. The students need to be the ones running around and doing all of the active stuff instead of us. And there's a lot more, um, kind of conversation around, uh, helping students create their own consequences for behavior instead of us doing all of the work all of the time. And there's more of that in that book, Teaching with Love and Logic. So I won't go too far into that. The last thing I want to talk about under this umbrella of redirecting to an action and not an inaction is... Again, we can partner with students and see what are they naturally motivated to do. So if it is developmentally appropriate for students to talk, and we know that it is, the the most obvious answer might not be to say there is no talking. The answer might be that there are specific times in this class for group work where you need to talk in order to get something done. So instead of saying no talking when I'm talking, that can still be the policy, but also we will partner those times of silence with plenty of times for students to do the developmentally appropriate task of talking and socializing. Same thing that we were talking about earlier. If we know that children are naturally motivated to move, if our student musicians naturally want to move, the natural next step in terms of our planning is not to say we have to teach kids to sit down and be still. The natural next step is to say, we're going to include lots and lots and lots of movement, and then we will sit down. And then there will be lots and lots and lots and lots of movement, and then we will sit down, right? Again, every lesson in terms of classroom management, every lesson needs the appropriate combination of movement and choice and social interaction. So we've talked about the teacher demeanor in terms of assumptions before we have this conversation. We've talked about appropriate expectations, and we've talked about one really simple trick, which is always to be redirecting to an action. And that assumes (laughs) that we have an action that we want the students to be doing. Oftentimes when I find a lot of off-task behavior, it's because we left it kind of open for students right? And so if you don't give me something to do with my hands, if my hands are not on my head, then 100% they're going to be on my instrument or my neighbor or your beautiful bulletin board that you just set up, right? (laughs) If we don't give students something to do, they will very naturally, and this is a good thing for them to do, they will fill in that gap that we have given them. So always redirecting to an action and thinking through our lesson plans to make sure there is an action that we can redirect to. Okay. Every class, we can expect students to push our boundaries. It doesn't mean that it will necessarily happen every class per se, but we can always expect it to happen because that is the work of a student is to see what is out here to explore. And again, is the adult in my life trustworthy? Okay, so every class, we are going to use some levels of redirection. Much of this came from a class I took in my undergraduate degree about educational psychology, and that was one of my favorite classes I have ever taken. Um, this first little point is not from that, but some some of these next 
points are. So I just want to make sure that uh, we know that I did not invent these off of my own head. <laughs> the first thing is that when it comes to redirection, your attention is so valuable. Students really care what you are paying attention to. So you are the narrator and you are going to narrate what you see before there is a problem. You're going to narrate in a way that is genuine and not sarcastic. Like, Ooh, thank you. So-and-so for holding your sticks in rest position looks over at the kid, not in rest position, right? <laughs> it's going to be in a way that is still like we talked about respectful and, um, again, genuine you're going to start narrating before you see a problem. And when you narrate, you'll say, Ooh, I see kindergarten musicians who are a ba ba ba, whatever it is that you like, the behavior that you enjoy seeing that is uh, helpful to the rest of the class. That is what you talk about. And you just narrate every single thing that you can. You do that. I can't state this enough. <laughs> you do that before a problem happens. So that is the first level of redirection, and that is going to happen every single class. The next thing that is really important is to have nonverbal signals. So in my teaching, uh, I have hand signs that I use for sit down and stand up. And then it's also helpful to have a quiet signal like, uh, you know, hand in the air is a really common one, or sometimes I have used um, finger symbols and I like that because I can stick them in my pocket and they're just always with me all the time. I know other teachers uh, have a chime that they use. Having some sort of signal for silence so that we're not yelling over students, that is really, really important as well. So those are kind of the two foundational practices that we're going to use every single class. Now, when a student is off task, the very first thing we're going to do after these um, foundational, I don't know, setting the scene <laughs> steps have been taken care of, like narrating and using a signal. The first thing we're going to do is just make eye contact with that student. And we want them to know that we see them. When we make eye contact, we are going to make eye contact and smile. And what that is trying to communicate is, hi there, I see what you're doing and I'm thrilled that you are in this music class. You know my expectation of you in this music class. And I want you to know that I see you being off task. So all of these things happen can be true at the same time. So I can notice that you are off task and I can be thrilled that you are here in this music room with me and I can have an expectation for your behavior that I have set previously. That eye contact and a smile, if you start implementing that, that will take care of so much redirection for you, especially if you catch that student at the very beginning of class, eye contact and a smile. The next thing is proximity. So if a student is, you know, we're sitting there and maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe we're supposed to be, maybe we're standing there and we're supposed to be doing some sort of beat movement activity and the kid is off in like goofy land. You know how kids get goofy? That's totally fine. We're going to make eye contact and smile. And sometimes that won't be enough. And then we are just going to walk over kind of in their um, area of the classroom. This is very helpful. If you are already a teacher who moves around the room a lot, this will be 
kind of a natural thing to do. Students will expect you to be up and around and moving around all the time, as opposed to this is the student section where perhaps they are seated in rows looking at you, the single focus of attention, versus maybe we are all in a circle and then the teacher doesn't really have a set spot per se. The teacher is kind of just up and around all the time. Having that proximity is really, 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 really helpful in terms of those low grade redirections. I want to be clear about what I mean when I say proximity. You can feel someone's presence when they are in your half of the room versus if they are off in their own corner. That would be an appropriate level of proximity. I would not recommend getting into that student's personal bubble because again, even though that's not a verbal communication like we talked about at the beginning of class, that is... a a boundary that the student probably has for themselves, my personal bubble, my personal space. And we want to be respectful in how we communicate non-verbally as well. So I just want to make sure that I have clarified when I say proximity, I mean an appropriate and respectful level of proximity. And then what is very convenient is after eye contact and a smile and after proximity, then you are probably already in that student's area of the classroom. And that makes it very easy to give a discrete verbal redirection. This is even easier if the rest of the class is doing something like playing a game, right? So if we are playing um, Bow Wow Wow, and the teacher is just up and around all over the place. And then when a student needs a redirection, we can very easily be close to that student and just give them a verbal redirection right there. What we want to avoid is constantly calling out student names in front of the entire class. And that makes a lot of sense when we think about how we want to be redirected. So let's imagine that we are talking a lot at a staff meeting, right? Um, Or if you can remember a time at school where you were redirected in a way that you didn't appreciate, we can still have expectations, high expectations for student behavior. And I do recommend having very high expectations for student behavior. But when we redirect, we want to redirect in a way that maintains a positive relationship between you and that student and you and that student and the rest of the class right? And between that student and the subject of music. This is really important. Now, those are the levels of redirection that we are probably going to use every class, being the narrator, having a signal for silence or for focus, using eye contact and a smile, using proximity, and then a discrete verbal redirection. These apply to, I think I referred to them earlier as like kind of low grade, run of the mill, every class kind of redirection. This is not the way to approach a child who has thrown a chair across the room, right? (laughs) Or a child who is screaming and they have totally lost control over their self-management. This is just the everyday kind of class procedures that we can put into place so that depending on the students that we are working with and again, the emotional stories that they have around authority and redirection and all of that stuff, hopefully 
these kinds of classroom management practices will really, really help us out so that a lot of these misbehaviors, these off-task behaviors are taken care of before it gets to a point where a student is throwing a chair. And again, just to reiterate, this podcast is not going to be able to cover every single scenario, but hopefully when we talk about these big categories, these elemental building blocks of classroom management, hopefully that takes care of a lot of our headache later. Okay. All of us have bad days. All of us have bad classes. When I say classes, I mean like class periods, experiences with a specific group of students. So let's talk about what to do on a really rough day. (laughs) There are two things that I recommend. So obviously, like we've been talking about, there's so much preventative stuff that we can do beforehand. But if we are in the moment and we are just noticing chaos all around us and we feel defeated, we've all been there. So there are two things that we can do. The first thing is to pull out a pencil and a sheet of paper and start writing don't say anything, just start writing. And students, this is uh, something that I adapted from um, a podcast a long time ago uh, from the cult of pedagogy, Jennifer Gonzalez. I am going to start writing down the names of students who are following directions, the names of students who are being kind to each other, the names of students who I see working very hard to do their best. This is not a public list and students do not know what you're writing. But when they see you writing, instantly there will be a hush over the room. (laughs) The purpose of this list is not necessarily to put it on the board and say, look, these are all the good, all the good kids. Wow. Hey, bad kids. Don't you wish your name was on the board? It's not public shaming. This is a private list. The point is to change our headspace. Because again, do you remember we talked about having the assumption that we like our students and that our students like us? If we are in a position that we are really, really ticked off at our class, we are not going to make choices or it will be less likely that we are going to make choices that we are proud of later. And so one way we can change our headspace is just look for the students who are on task, the students who are doing their best as far as we can see, because what happens in a class that we feel is kind of off the rails, it is not normally the whole class. Normally in a class of 25, you might have a group of, you know, three, five, seven or so students that are just kind of setting a tone of chaos for the rest of us. (laughs) And so if we can change our headspace to say, ah, now I have clarity of what's going on here. All of these students are on board with me. I have this handful of students that are not on board with what we're doing as the class. That changes how we approach our next decision. And again, I want to reiterate that we can still, and we should still have very high expectations, but going back to this positive mental headspace, we are not in a good place to make calm decisions, to make strategic decisions about classroom management when we are feeling so angry at a class that we don't know what to do with ourselves. So 
that is one reason that we talked about having a positive headspace, just so that we can um, make choices about our own behavior with confidence. Okay. So that's what to do uh, in the midst of kind of a a chaotic situation. (laughs) Uh, And then chaotic as in uh, no one is physically unsafe, right? It's just general chaos. Next, with that group of students that now we know we're not dealing with an entire class, we are dealing with just a small handful of students, we can find who we view as maybe the main student motivator in that group. And we're going to ask that student to stay after class. We're going to ask it in a way that is discreet, that doesn't let the whole class know that we are asking this student to stay after class. And then here's the really important part. When that student stays after class, again, this will be dependent on the type of misbehavior that we have observed in the classroom. And uh, I'll say again, this is this whole podcast episode is totally outside the conversation about rules and consequences and sticker charts and punishments and all of that. So obviously you would keep whatever practices you have identified as effective and positive in your own classroom. We're going to ask that student to stay after class. And when they stay after class, you're going to say, hey, will you help me please um, put these instruments away? And you put the instruments away together. And you don't bring anything up. You're just working together. Or you say, I need to um, organize this bookshelf. Could you just put all of the red books on this shelf with me? It'll only take a second, thanks. And then you might say, um, Hey, so your brother told me that you have a cheerleading competition coming up, or your brother told me that you have a baseball game coming up. How's baseball going? And you're going to talk about something that does not have anything to do with the misbehavior. And ideally you will set the tone so that the student is the one doing the talking. And in order to do that, you might need to make a little bit of room for silence. You might not fill it up with conversation the whole entire time. So a nice way to do this is to wait five seconds and then say something. And you're going to say something about the student's life outside music class, outside the misbehavior, outside, um, outside school, preferably. And then after we have this positive experience where we're only talking about the student and the student's interest and working on just very in those very tiny, tiny, tiny moments, doing whatever we can to build that relationship. After that, as we are walking the student to the door, because the next class is on their way, right? We're going to say, Hey, do you remember earlier when you, whatever the misbehavior was, and they're going to be like, yeah. And you're going to say, actually that made it really hard for me to teach and you just leave it there. And the kid goes, Oh, and then you might say next time I would like you to whatever the behavior is that you want. And then you say, do you think that is something that you can do for me? And the student will say, sure. The point of this is for not for the student to, you know, get away with the misbehavior. It's not, um, for them to, I don't know, avoid any expectations that we might have for the rest of the class. This is outside any sort of consequence system. Again, any sort of consequence system that you might have put in place in your classroom. This is making sure that, When we redirect a behavior, we are doing it in a way that motivates the student to behave better next time instead of making it me versus you. 
We want to redirect the behavior in a way that reminds both of us that we are both human and in a way that reminds us as the adult in the room, as the person with agency, more agency developmentally over our emotional management, over our behavioral management, that reminds us that this is a human as well. And this human has their own set of values and interests and a whole life outside of school, outside of this, you know, 35 minute music class. So on a bad day, we are going to try to address our own headspace so that we can make good decisions in a moment about what to do with this wild, crazy, out-of-control class, right? Uh, We are going to write down the names of students that we see doing their best, following directions, being kind to each other, etc. And then the other thing is we can identify one student and have them stay after class in a way that is intended to build the relationship and positively impact future behavior. There are several resources that have really helped frame my thinking around uh, this topic of classroom management. And again, I know that this podcast episode falls short of thinking through procedures for every single situation. Some resources that you might be interested in, I, I do have a post about classroom management specifically for upper elementary. So if you just Google um, Victoria Bowler classroom management, you'll find that. Other uh, things that I have read that have been impactful for me, there's not a single resource that I have completely taken on as my own identity. Um, And so, you know, when I give this list, it's not that I personally endorse every single aspect of every single part of every single resource, (laughs) but they have been influential in how I think about this topic. The first one is punished by rewards, the trouble with gold stars, incentive plans, A's, praise, and other bribes by Alfie Kohn. And that is a very well-known book. And certainly that author is very well-known in the field of educational psychology. The next one that I mentioned earlier is teaching with love and logic, taking control of the classroom. That is Jim Fay and Charles Fay. The next one is uh, a series, What Every Teacher Needs to Know. This is a K-5 series by Margaret Wilson and Mike Anderson. And that is through the Responsive Classroom, um, I don't know, universe. (laughs) And then uh, the next one, the classic that you have no doubt come across, uh, if not read cover to cover, is The First Days of School, How to Be an Effective Teacher by Harry Wong. And then the very last book is Better Than Carrots or Sticks, Restorative Practices for Positive Classroom Management. And that is by Douglas Fisher and Nancy Fay and Dominique Smith. This is uh, around the topic of restorative justice. All right. That is where we are going to need to wrap it up for time reasons. And I just, again, want to acknowledge that there is still so much that we could talk about in terms of classroom management. Hopefully today we have looked at some of the elemental building blocks of a positive classroom management experience. So before the sticker charts, before the star musicians, before the behavioral reward systems, we have some assumptions about our relationships with students 
Uh, we have appropriate expectations. We can redirect to an action, not an inaction. We have levels of redirection that we can use every single class as needed. And then we have some strategies about what to do on a bad day.